Hey there, everybody. This episode is about the history of certain faiths that are still actively practiced today. So I just wanted to come out in front and say that our intention is to shine a light on the stories behind these organizations and bring our perspectives to those stories and people, but not to denigrate anyone's faith or beliefs or anything that brings people solace and a sense of peace in these trying times. With that out of the way, here's the theme song. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Ah, oh, these millennials, I swear. What about them? You know, they're always like anticipating the arrival of Christ. They are. Yeah, and it's always, oh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Ugh. I feel like you're talking about different millennials. Now, if you were to say like the apocalypse. Oh, no, that comes after the millennium, obviously. <sighs> What are you, some sort of post-millennialist? Come on, get out of here. So I feel like we're talking about some type of millennial today. Yeah, we're, we're talking about another religious movement. We're going to talk about uh, Millerism, the Millerites. They were waiting for Christ, I suppose. Waiting very expectantly. <laughs> so like all good stories, uh, this is going to take us to... The 1800s in the United States of America. Of course. When everyone was, was crazy. off their rocker. So, uh, I mean, they were all basically drinking like arsenic as medicine. So, of course, <laughs> they were crazy. More or less. So, William Miller. Mm -hmm. He was born in 1782, a good little Baptist boy. Uh-huh. And grew up to be a nice, hearty farmer. Oh, good. As one would expect. Nice, hearty. Mm-hmm. Not like... He didn't run a Hardee's, no, or a Carl's Jr. or a Checkers. I, I know what you meant. I was trying to come up with a joke, but I didn't have one. So I jumped in with one. But, We're a partnership. But that We're wasn't the direction, the direction I was heading. The direction I'm going is forward to 1803 yeah. when he married and, and moved to a new town. And uh, in, in this town... There, there weren't a lot of good, faithful Baptists. and Instead, the, the big names in town were deists. Mm. So he converted to to be part of, you know, the the club, basically. Yeah, yeah. And deism is the belief that God isn't really involved in people's lives. So they, they value... He's got too much to do. Yeah, it, it's... He can't listen to you, like, I don't know, ask for, like, a new tie. He's got <laughs> other things on his mind. Dear God, my children were very, very bad on Father's Day this year. I have no new ties. What? It's serious. Like, there's people who are like, oh, just pray pray to God and he'll give you what you need. Like, oh, I've, I've been trying to find an orange shirt, Jesus. And then Jesus led me to the right thrift store and there was an orange shirt. This is, a, this is the way people think sometimes. I just like the idea that Amazon.com is Jesus. Yeah. You can find anything is. there. It is. Who knew? But the deism was, was an enlightenment sort of... of 
movement. Uh, it's very rational. We're talking about Hume and John Locke and all the founding fathers, basically a majority anyway. We're, we're deists. So in 1812, he served in the War of 1812, uh, and he survived this shelling miraculously. Like a, a shell landed, exploded, everybody around him died or was horribly injured. He didn't have a, sh- uh, a scratch on him. Hmm. So this shake shook his belief that God did not have a hand in human affairs. Like, he, he was saved. Mm-hmm. So he returned and started secretly practicing his Baptist faith again and and attending church while, you know, seven days of the week. Oh, yeah, Dias, yeah, did, did you read the latest French guy? Oh, yeah, me too. Thumbs up. Sunday, read, read my Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So that didn't work out too long. You know, you, you lead a double life. People are going to catch wind of it. And his Deist friends challenged him to prove that his faith was worth having so he's like all right i'll i'll show you what's what i know from experience that god is real and has a hand in in our affairs so i'm just going to go to the bible verse by verse and uh figure out what every single one means and work out everything that you conceive as an inconsistency i'm going to figure out how it really works because it obviously works because i'm not dead that's gonna take a long time They use really tiny print in that thing. Like, what? <laughs> we, we fast forward another six years. Because it's taken a long time. To 1818, where he discovers a prediction for Christ's return in Daniel 8.14. Can I just say, this is like the longest bet ever between friends. <laughs> like, okay, in ten years, I'm going to prove you wrong. I think if it's about... Proving the nature of God, it's kind of worth waiting for, right? But by then they're just going to be like, dude, you've been talking about this for 10 years. Can you just let it go? We just go get some ale down at the ale house and just like be dudes again. Let's just be guys being dudes. Come on. Yeah. Daniel 8.14 reads, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So Miller figured, what, what, what is this sanctuary being cleansed? What, what's going on here? Well, it must be Christ's second coming, Earth's purification as, as Jesus returns. Mm-hmm. Earth is the sanctuary. Jesus is going to come do the cleansing in 2,300 days. And a very common uh, uh, principle in interpreting prophecy was taking day to mean year. Uh-huh. So 2,300 years after some date, Jesus is coming. And so so he, he checked. Because you don't want to, like, have missed the coming of Jesus. Yeah. If it was really, like, 2,300 days. Like, you would have missed that. <laughs> it would have been a long time ago. Yeah. So, of and course, it, clearly... it means years because Jesus wants us not to miss him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there are some instances in the Bible of days uh, meaning years, like uh, Ezekiel tying himself up and lying on his side. Ezekiel was a weird guy, let me tell you. He's <laughs> into some uh, fun things there. Yeah, mostly eating poo. Uh, <laughs> and being tied up? Yeah, e- e- yes. Cool. Okay, each of their own. And spaceships. You have e- fun, Ezekiel. <laughs> and uh, spaceships. And spaceships. And spaceships. Yeah. Okay. Gonna do an episode on that one? 
Uh, I was on an episode of Sunday School Dropouts talking about Ezekiel's spaceships. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, you can learn more there. Mm-hmm. So the question is, when, when does this 2300 start? Uh, Miller pours over his Bible some more and decides that uh, the start point is the decree to rebuild Jerusalem in 457 BCE. Uh, if you're going to cleanse the sanctuary, there needs to be a sanctuary, right? But I thought he said it was the planet. Like it was Earth. He had a, there's a chart. I'm going to show you the chart in a while. There's a lot going into this. You gotta have, like, the capital of the planet. <laughs> but you, you just do some quick math. Therefore, the end of the world would commence sometime in 1843. Of course it would! So nice and convenient timing there for a certain, uh... Generation? Yeah yeah, 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 you know. Oh, yes, within my lifetime. So what people might be wondering is what do biblical scholars today say about the book of Daniel? What is the uh, commonly accepted line? Daniel is a collection of uh, things written during the Maccabean period. The first half is uh, court tales, mostly about a guy named Daniel. And the second half is uh, apocalyptic visions attributed to the seer Daniel. So it's all set in the uh, uh, Babylonian exile, but it was written, like I say, in the Maccabean period when uh, the Jews are being oppressed by uh, Antiochus, this ruler from Greece. Mm -hmm. So the, the first half of those stories are all about how the Jews survived under exile and provide a model of what to do during this Greek oppression. You know, have faith, be clever, be like Daniel. And the second half is... Pretty clearly prophecies about the end of Antiochus. God's going to come and crush this fool, just like he crushed all the other fools that have oppressed us so far. The 2300 is also in the original text as evenings and mornings, uh, which is to say 1,150 days instead of 2,300. Aha! Uh -huh. And within a few verses, there are three versions of that number. Of course there are. William Miller... He's he's got it under control. He knows what's what. Of course he does. He he was a true believer. I mean, you go through an experience like that, it changes your outlook on everything. But he he kept checking his math, he kept cross-referencing his arguments and building his theology privately for years. He did not publish until 1822, 4 years after he figured out when Jesus is coming. He kept it to himself because he wanted to be sure it was right. Well, yeah, when you're going to make such a statement, you <laughs> You want to check your facts. Anything could happen if he turned out to be wrong. But he sat on it, only speaking to people privately even longer. He, he didn't preach until 1831. Nine more years. This dude was really questioning if he was right or not. Yeah, like, uh, okay, it, it's out there in the world. People can do what they want. I'm not going to say anything from the pulpit for another nine years. Uh, the story goes, you know, he, he was feeling this call to preach for a long, long time, and he was wrestling with it. And then one day, he was reading his Bible, as he often did, and he was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. Next opportunity to come and, and talk about this, this prophecy, I'll take. Fine. Just then, a boy knocked on the door to invite him to fill in for a preacher uh, in the next town over who had fallen sick. And speak on Christ's imminent return. Well, Yeah. The boy came from that town, Dresden, which was over an hour's horse ride away. 
So he left to get Miller before Miller made up his mind to accept it. Mm-hmm. This is taken as a sign. Uh-huh. So now we, we move to the publicity stage of Millerism, as it would come to be known. The, the word needs to be shared. So Miller is going around. He's speaking by request. Okay. Anybody who, who writes to him say, hey, tell us about your stuff. He goes and tells him about his stuff. So now we move to Joshua Himes, a preacher and publisher in Massachusetts. He was young and energetic, incredibly energetic. Uh, He built a few churches from nothing to hundreds of members already. Like by his mid-20s, he'd done that like twice. Wow. His churches were uh, hubs for abolitionists and the temperance movement and the peace movement in 1830s Massachusetts. Uh, he, he was into all of the New England Christian reform movements of the time. Mm-hmm. So he met Miller in uh, 1839 when Himes himself was only 34 years old and invited him to speak at his Massachusetts church. He did so, and afterwards Himes is like, hey, why haven't you gone to talk in the big cities? You've, you've been in these towns, you've done a few camp meetings, probably. This is your first time in Boston. What about New York? What about Philadelphia? What about Montpelier? Come on. Mm -hmm. Miller said, hey, I only go where I'm invited. Thanks for inviting me. So Himes took up the mission to open all doors to Miller and his message. So I mentioned that Himes was also a publisher. In March 1840, the Signs of the Times began publication. Uh, This was a newspaper all about this second advent belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the second coming of Christ. So they a lot of names got thrown around. Millerism, the Millerites, uh, Adventist beliefs. They weren't really organized, so there wasn't a definite label. Yeah. But it, it was a paper that uh, shared these interpretations of Bible verses and prophecies and had a, a people write in and debate them in like the letters column. <laughs> nice. Uh, Himes also published collections of, of Miller's lectures, uh, second paper, the, the Midnight Cry. Uh, he bought the biggest tent in America. <laughs> and with that tent, managed Miller's grueling tours. A lot of camp meetings, a lot of speaking tours. Uh, at the height of the movement, Miller was doing like something like 600, 800 lectures a year. Dang. There's only 365 days in a year. Yeah. Dude was always going. Now, Himes' papers weren't the only ones. By the mid-1840s, there were over 48 Millerite periodicals. Uh, there was one that was specifically for the women's perspective. Oh, of course. And there was one that had a very academic bent. Uh, it only ran for three issues, but because it was so, like, rigorously researched and footnoted and for you know the the intellectual types the smallest issue was 150 pages oh my god (laughs) well yeah they put themselves out of business because they couldn't afford that yeah himes was a business manager and he was relentlessly energetic uh just like he was before uh, he met Miller. He was in the service of Miller. And it's easy to sort of think of him as like some sort of religious profiteer. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, just because there were a lot of things being printed doesn't mean they were making money off of them. A lot yeah. of things were being handed out 
for free. A lot of them were intended to fail. Like we do 12 issues in this city, start three months before the tour comes here, and then nine months after. And if it doesn't pay for itself, we close up shop. But And that's basically what always happened. Yeah. Now, this whole movement was mostly centered in New York and New England, uh, primarily Vermont. But but there were papers also printed in the UK, Australia, Canada. Uh, There were some Millerite communities in the American South and uh, the the Midwest. Word travels, uh, especially when it's about how the world is going to end. That's something that catches a lot of attention. Yeah. Yeah. In spring 1844... Uh, Himes announced that over 5 million Millerite periodicals had been distributed. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> so this publicity tour, that this relentless um, sharing of the word, really grew the movement, clearly. This is where we get back to the 1843 chart. Uh-huh. Uh, this was not printed in 1843. It's named because it shows why the world is going to end in 1843. Uh-huh. It's this illustrated depiction of, you know, the, the prophecies in Daniel with footnotes and cross-references. And one side is all, like, math. And another side is is the big statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And there's the, the ten-horned goat. It's It's all there. It's... I've tried to read it. I I cannot. This chart must have come with like instructions mm-hmm. for a person to stand and point at one <laughs> thing or another. It's just too much. But it spread around a lot. Every camp meeting had uh every tent had their own chart so that that they could study by. Yeah. It was followed by the uh 1845 chart, which was printed in 1845. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> after after things didn't end. Well, not yet, but it's coming soon. Oh, okay. Just look at the chart. There was a uh, lighthouse tender, a a person that would sail up and down the East Coast delivering oil to the lighthouses. And he was an ardent believer himself. He just delivered literature along with his oil to every lighthouse up and down the East Coast. This big, big tent, this biggest tent in America uh, came into play at their camp meetings. These meetings would house four to 15,000 people. Oh, my God. They'd come to hear Miller and other uh, Millerite preachers preaching. They'd share their stories of how they came to the movement, how it feels to know that Christ's return is imminent. He's, he's coming, and, and we are the saved, and that's wonderful. To engage in fellowship with their fellow believers, there were also some hecklers Every story about a a preacher in the Millerite movement involves a few cases of snowballs or rotten vegetables or rocks or just general things being thrown at them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And apparently some folks just went to get a look at the biggest tent in America. Well, yeah, you know, if that's what it is, that's going to draw people in. There wasn't much to look at in the 1800s. It seated 4,000 comfortably. And yet they, like, crammed... 15,000 in. Standing room only. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the the preaching was generally held in open air when possible in a natural sanctuary. Oh. It was, it's a whole thing. It's it, like there wasn't a tent big enough for that. Mm-hmm. The, these people, in the beginning at least, weren't part of the Millerite church, quote unquote. They were Baptists. They were Methodists. They were members of their home church who also believed that Christ's return was imminent. Mm-hmm. Eventually that turned, but in the beginning they, they were just 
whatever they normally were, but also, no, that's definitely what that verse in Daniel means. And eventually that did turn. So believers started being cast out of their congregations, and mainline churches were banning Adventist messages. Because they have their own eschatology. They, they have their own beliefs of what's going to happen in the, the end times. And yeah. this is running contrary to their teachings. They can't have that. Yes. And also the fear of like, well, what happens if it doesn't happen? These yeah. people are going to become some friggin' weirdos. Yeah. And we, we don't want their kind here. Now, because Miller came to his theology by a, a close personal study of the Bible line by line, he sort of encouraged everyone to do the same. So there is a lot of flowering of other ideas coming out. When you have a bunch of people given the encouragement to solve life's mysteries. Oh, boy. And a whole audience just ready to be swayed. A lot of people have a chance to, to make an argument and, and see what grabs hold of who. Uh, so a debate over millennialism, which is, you know, in what order will all the predicted events of the end times occur? Uh-huh. Uh, Millerism was definitely pre-millennialist, which is that Jesus comes, then he reigns for a thousand years, and then all the tribulations and day of judgment. Uh-huh. But what if the judgment comes, and then the thousand years, and then the day of judgment? Or what if, and like, be because all of these things aren't, crystal clear in the text, you can rearrange them any way you want and probably find something to back you up. Yep. Uh, is the soul mortal? Would a loving God really send eternal souls to, to torment? Or is hell just a word we use for the oblivion of the soul's death? Mm. I mean, we, we don't know, but we do know if we look here, here, and here, and because of this, we know that this really means that. And we ignore those things over there. <laughs> uh, what is the beast? Who is the Antichrist? Like, we're going to meet him soon, right? We should. The beast is just a prince who had an old lady put a curse on him and give him an enchanted rose. Mm -hmm. And the Antichrist is Robert De Niro. Yeah. 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 I don't know why this is so confusing for them. People think it's Al Pacino, but that's a trick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what day is the real Sabbath? Why, why, why do we do things on Sundays? I don't think it's, it should be Sunday. No. But the biggest question is, when are we talking exactly? You said soon. I get that it's soon, but like if I had to put it on a calendar? I, I'm getting married and I want to make sure <laughs> that I'm getting married on the right date, which is not when the end is coming. So I would like to enjoy my honeymoon. Mm -hmm. One of the, the best things about any Millerite publication, like all these uh, um, papers talking about their upcoming issues, or all these flyers attend, uh, uh, advertising upcoming camp meetings, they always ended with, if time continues. Ah! You know... Just in case. You know what? I'm now going to use that phrase when, like, making plans with someone like, oh, yeah, I'll see you Monday, if time continues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We might be dead before then. I don't know. Miller's close friends, Himes, other leading preachers, were always trying to get him to be specific. Like, you did the math. You know when you're talking about. Tell, tell the people when you're talking about. So in January 1843... He finally says that he expects the second coming to come between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. Ah. Oh. 
So th this is, you know, when his math tells him, and uh, March 21st uh, was the beginning, what uh, uh, was the Jewish New Year. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, clearly God's talking about the Jewish calendar. Like, the, the Gregorian calendar wasn't invented yet. He didn't... Yeah. He didn't truck with no ancient Romans. No. No. March 21st, 1844 passes. And then uh, people come out, oh, 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 wrong Jewish calendar. It should have been the Karaite calendar instead of the rabbinic calendar. Obviously. The, the new deadline is April 18th, 1844. Uh-huh. April 18th comes and goes without any notable events. Yeah. So this guy, Samuel Snow in August, uh, presents a new argument based on, on typology, which is the idea that um, certain things are repeated in the Bible, so they'll keep being repeated. Yeah. Basically, that these themes that uh, uh, and, and occurrences that show up every once in a while are types, and the types keep going. He uses typology to argue that the previous predictions were missing a key detail from Christ's first advent uh, and previous events of this type, the, the tarrying time. Uh-huh. So Christ would return on the 10th day of the 7th month of the present year, 1844. He, he does the math using the Karaite calendar and tells everybody, well, that's October 22nd. Of course it is. Here we go. Third time's the charm. It's not the charm. Uh, we'll find out after the break. Doing good? Yeah. The world hasn't ended, so I'm doing fine. Though, though apparently, according to you, uh, we the the apocalypse is coming because you took the day off <laughs> for Eclipse Day, but you called it Apocalypse Day. I was, I just finished writing this. It was on my mind, uh -huh. and if an eclipse had happened, I think the history of Millerism might have turned out very differently. What What if Eclipse Day does like? What if it? What is if? the second coming of Christ? What if? And like, what if you just predicted it? What if there were uh, alien spaceships behind a comet ready to, to take us away? Well, you know, people have been sighting flying flying humanoids along Lake Michigan. So, <laughs> like, who knows? Who knows? So, October 22nd, 1844. Uh-huh. It might not surprise you to know that this date has become known as the Great Disappointment. <laughs> Not surprised. So Miller, Himes, other leaders disputed the October 22nd date up until it was almost too late not to. Uh, Miller came out and said, oh, well, yep, I bet you're right, on October 1st. <laughs> three weeks out. By that time, everybody fell in line. Everybody was on board. Last shot, the third strike. Tensions had grown to a fever pitch. Uh, some believers had sold all their worldly possessions, you know, left their fields to grow fallow, closed their stores. Uh, Miller was doing several lectures a day. Outsiders were seeing these people get potentially dangerous now. Yeah. And then October 22nd came and went. Nothing out of the ordinary occurred. If Jesus had come, it sure didn't look like it. 
Well, you know, he just didn't want a big ordeal, so he quietly snuck in the back door and just went about his business. Mm-hmm. Now you're getting ahead. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, this is what one believer said about the day. I waited all Tuesday, and dear Jesus did not come. I'm forever going to call him dear Jesus. Like you're writing a it's letter. like, dear Abby, hey, dear Jesus, my girlfriend left me. What should I do? Okay, I waited all Tuesday, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday and was well in body as I ever was. But after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint, and therefore dark, I needed someone to help me up to my chamber, as my natural strength was leaving me very fast. I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. It Dang, is, near, dear Jesus. It is a great disappointment. <sighs> So Millerites were taunted in in cartoons of the day, in the street, from the pulpit of mainline churches. Uh, Some Millerite churches were burned to the ground or uh, otherwise vandalized. Uh, One group in Toronto was tarred and feathered. Oh boy. It's one thing for Jesus to not come when you, you know, laid out your your best china and and dressed in in your your Sunday finest. Mm -hmm. But then they get tarred and feathered for it. That's, That's awful. So the big question was, where do we go from here? And most just went back to their lives. You know, they they returned to their jobs, their families, their previous churches. Uh, a good portion really liked the sort of alternative Christianity and, and joined sh- the, the Shaker community instead. But in any case, they, they weren't expecting the second coming next weekend anymore. Yeah. But then there there were committed Millerites who were, were just looking for the next step. You know, that, that, okay, the date came and went. Clearly, we have to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, some further dates were predicted, but none really caught on. Uh, weren't falling for that anymore, I guess. Uh, one preacher said that Christ came down to sit on a cloud, as mentioned in Revelation 14, and it was up to the faithful to, to bring him down the rest of the way through their prayers. Others said that October was the dawn of the seventh millennium, the the great thousand-year Sabbath. So we, the saved, should all stop working for the next thousand years and keep the Sabbath holy. Oh, oh. Stop. Just on Sunday? Just on Sabbath? Or like every day? Every day is Sunday for a thousand years. Oh, good luck with that, people. Uh, Jesus said in Mark 10 that we must receive the kingdom of God like a child. So uh, there was a sect that just acted like children. Because that's what you got to do. Okay. These were mostly fringes. uh, But the three major divisions were... were The first big one were were the shut-door Millerites. Uh, Miller had preached that there would be a time when it was too late for salvation, that that the door would be shut, and only those already saved would enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Joseph Turner argued that's what October 22nd really was. The, the door was shut. We don't know when he's coming. We're, we're in the tarrying time now, but it has got to be soon now that probation had closed. Mm-hmm. And like, you couldn't be saved. There's only right. people who are already saved. We're not taking anyone else. So yeah, The rest the, of you are screwed. The evangelism is done. We're just going to keep to our own and and wait patiently. Okay. Uh, that branch, like I say, it started as probably the largest one, but it shrank pretty quickly because they couldn't do outreach, and it's kind of a downer. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> People, you know, die. Mm-hmm. You lose members. Now, Hiram Edson had another idea. Earlier, it, when he joined the Millerite movement, I think in 43, he believed he had the power to heal the sick, granted by God as soon as he accepted the Second Advent teachings. Uh-huh. His experience of the Great Disappointment uh, sounded like this. Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. It seems that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept till the day dawn. So so the next day, after he finished weeping and weeping, mm-hmm. uh, he and so, some friends were going to uh, meet another Millerite enclave. Uh, to just talk about what now. Uh-huh. And he was walking out through his fields because they did not want to be seen on the street for fear of, of what may come to them. And so while he was in his fields, he was struck by a vision uh, and realized that the sanctuary to be cleansed was not the earth, it was not the, the church, but the inner sanctuary of heaven. That Jesus is the high priest of heaven, and he's moving from uh, the sanctuary to the Holy of Holies and cleansing that. Okay. So that's why we didn't see anything, because it didn't happen here on it's Earth. It's up there. It's, it's heavenly. Now, Himes uh, was part of the third big branch, uh, preaching a more mainline version of Millerism and organizing it into what we now call the Advent Christian Church. Uh, they believe nothing significant happened on October 22nd. The prediction was just a case of human error. Mm-hmm. So we have all these these branches. Yeah. Sects are yep. forming. Yep. We, we got to figure out what to do with all these people. Yeah. So Himes called the Albany Conference uh, in 1845 in Albany, New York, mm-hmm. to reunify the movement. Instead, four groups came out. Ah. Miller spent the rest of his life working toward unity. He died in 1849. Uh, the only surviving groups of those four are the Advent Christian Church that uh-huh. I just mentioned and the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh-huh. One of them just sort of died out. The, the fourth got reabsorbed into the Advent Christian Church eventually. Yeah. They did succeed in some of their goals, like resolving to ban some extreme practices like the, the baby people. That's that's not allowed anymore. Don't act yeah, like children. Do they act like children or do they act like babies? Childlike behavior was what was banned. Okay, okay. Because so I was just like... Buckling they all their acted... knickerbockers above the knee and... Because uh... I was like, if they all acted like babies, they would have all like died from starvation. <laughs> but if they're acting like children, like children know how to like make food. Okay. Yeah. They, they also banned mandatory kissing. On greetings. That was a thing? The holy kiss. Yes, it is a thing. Yeah. It, it is something that comes and goes with various fringe Christian groups. The greeting with the holy kiss. That's creepy. And that's why it's not allowed. I mean, I already don't like if you have to go somewhere and they're like, you know. Hugs. Hugs or like handshakes. I'm like, no, I'm good. You don't like handshakes? I don't like when they like make you like go greet people you don't know and handshake. Like, oh, no. You mean, you mean at church? Like at church. Okay. Or like we went to that one concert and they're like, greet someone you don't know. And I was like, I don't want to. Take that, third eye blind. I just want to 
keeping my hands to myself. Be here and not touch people. I don't know. So let's get back to the the biggest Millerite movement today, the mm-hmm. Seventh-day Adventists. Mm-hmm. And you can't really talk about the Seventh-day Adventists without talking about Ellen White. Okay. Uh, at age nine, young Ellen White was hit in the head with a rock, and she thought she might die. Oh, so man. she confessed her sins and devoted herself to Jesus. Uh-huh. In 1840, three years later at age 12... Her family attended uh, Miller's lectures, and they left their Methodist church for Adventism. Uh-huh. She she grew up alongside this movement. Uh, she married preacher James White in 1846. And she, she did not die. She did not die. She did not die. Now, Ellen White was not just a, a preacher's wife with a unique uh, childhood. Mm-hmm. She had visions. Okay. Starting after October 1844, she began having visions. Uh, She had up to 200 uh, by 1863, the Seventh-day Adventist Church's official founding. By her death, she had had over 2,000. I'm assuming that rock maybe did some damage? You're not the first person to to (laughs) make this claim. How big was this rock? Big enough that she thought she might die. Then like, again, she's a nine-year-old. Who knows how Nine-year-olds think they're going to die from, like, accidentally swallowing a cherry pit. <laughs> like... Well, when the tree grows, you're going to explode. <laughs> that makes sense. So that's a little bit about Ellen White. So, yeah, she, she grew up alongside Adventism. She was a... a teenage seer in these years in the wilderness after the Great Disappointment. Mm -hmm. So James and Ellen White believed Edson's argument that Christ had begun to cleanse the heavenly sanctuary. They were with that branch. Uh, In 1846, they attended a meeting in Port Gibson where another Adventist, Joseph Bates, convinced attendees that the Sabbath should be recognized on Saturday. Eventually, it came to be solidified sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Uh-huh. Uh, Ellen White had a vision on November 1848 that her husband should start a newspaper. He, he then took a second job as a farmhand to raise the cash to fulfill God's will. A second vision to, uh, of hers told him to start it right away, never mind how to pay for it. God was very insistent. So he did. Mm-hmm. So I'm also thinking she's just a very, like, greedy person who decides to use use the fact of, like, well, a rock fell on my head. God speaks to me. You should do these things I want. There are 19 million Seventh-day Adventists in the world today. Yeah. I wonder how many listen to our show. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, don't worry about it. Um, I don't... Why you don't do religion with me is I will question it all. But, yeah, he launched that paper with, with a special arrangement with the publisher. And The Present Truth is what it was called. It ran for 11 issues and spread the message of the Sabbath to anyone they thought might want to hear it. So mm-hmm. that they, friends, colleagues, uh, friends of friends. In 1860, their, their group that they had been organizing chose the name Seventh-day Adventists. And in 1863, they formed a general conference and made themselves an official denomination. Ellen White never held an official position in in this body, uh, but her visions and writing clearly influenced church doctrine and practice. 
uh, Seventh Day Adventists read the books she wrote, largely about her visions. Mm-hmm. And uh, she is the most translated American author of nonfiction ever. Wow. Because they translate her her works to every language under the sun and spread them around to, to uh, you know, missions. Yeah. James White was the church's founding leader, uh, Mr. Ellen White, basically. <laughs> uh, he moved the headquarters to Battle Creek, Michigan. Oh. Yeah. Uh, he suffered a stroke in 1865 uh, and died in 1881 under the care of Dr. Kellogg. Did he try to fix him with, like, cornflakes? Cornflakes and yogurt enemas? Yeah, it's that Dr. Kellogg. Yep. Uh, Dr. Kellogg was also an Adventist, and the church founded his sanitarium as an early part of their health ministry. Where everyone ate cornflakes. Mm -hmm. Because of Ellen White, uh, and specifically some of her visions, Seventh-day Adventists are really into promoting good health, uh, vegetarianism. Mm. So I I just thought that people who listen to our show are, are either familiar with or would be interested in the story of Dr. Kellogg, and I thought that's a fun way to tie in this historical story with a more known, hey, did you know that guy's a weirdo? He's very much a weirdo. <laughs> Yogurt enemas. Uh, this is what you get to think about when you eat your cornflakes from now on. <laughs> so, Millerism today. Like I said, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists uh, are... are by far, in a way, the, the biggest branch of people inspired by this movement. Sorry for all the things I said, I guess. Millions and millions of members worldwide. Uh, other Miller-descended faiths include uh, the Christadelphians. I've not heard of that one. They're not so big, but they're fun to say. Try it. Christadelphians? Are they in Philadelphia? Uh, they're, they're all about, like, brotherhood, you know, the root word. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Plenty of churches that use the name Church of God. Oh, yeah. Are are Millerite descended? Plenty aren't. It's it's a thing. Uh, there, there's a lot of cross pollination, including with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Of course, there are. Uh, they took some inspiration from the Millerites, some from other places. They're mostly their own thing. But it's sort of part of the legacy. Should we promote this episode to all the Jehovah Witnesses that are at the train stations? Maybe. Yeah. Just like, go be like, hey, you should listen to our podcast. <laughs> you probably won't like what my wife says. You're obliquely mentioned in one of the episodes. <laughs> but Bible prophecy and numerology are also still practiced. Like, uh, did the book of Jeremiah predict Brexit? What? That's something I found looking uh, up stuff for this episode. Is one of Daniel's visions actually about Donald Trump? I don't have words for this. People are still using the same passages in Daniel to predict the end times, which makes sense because they are apocalyptic visions, Uh, but with fewer specific dates. Mm -hmm. Like they learn, they learned you can't get too specific. Yeah, just just ask Jack Van Impey about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of of the statue of many metals. And hey, remember when the world was going to end in two thousand twelve? Yeah, yeah. After it was going to end in like two thousand. Mm-hmm. Like, it's always going to end. The the Millerites got a lot of publicity in, uh, was it, it was December 21st, right? So, like, starting December 22nd, 
2012. Yeah. Yeah. So, darling, what have you learned? I learned that the world is still kicking. Yeah. Even though many people just wanted it to end. You gotta watch what they're gonna say. Like, you know, one day the world's just gonna be like, fine, I'm done. Mm-hmm. If, if you put yourself in these people's shoes, it, it's so easy to understand why they believed in this, this movement so strongly. Because if anybody can convince somebody in your life that the end times are coming, then you're not going to want to lose them and they're not going to want to lose you. And so it, it just moves through these social networks. And then anybody that doesn't accept that network is broken off and you're only more strongly in with the in-group, in with the Millerites. And so it, it just becomes your life. I don't know. We had, like, my dad's cousin was one of those people that totally thought the world was ending in 2000 and, like, had yeah. their, like, bunker full of, like, food. <laughs> you know what we did? We distanced ourselves from them. We are like, eh, okay. <laughs> We're gonna just keep living life while you're in your bunker. But, yeah, exactly. So when uh, it doesn't happen, mm -hmm. you can either admit that you're wrong or you can have this... And part of it is, you know, it, it's a critical mass. It is these thousands of people meeting up in a big tent together. They don't want to say they're wrong, so they're just going to pick another date. And, and they're going to stick together because they already lost the people, the other people in their lives. Yeah. I guess. Things like that are so crazy because it is just like, you're just feeding the fire mm -hmm. no matter what. And it's just growing and... People get deeper and deeper into their belief. Yeah, I, I think the maybe the scarier message is that the world isn't ending and we're all stuck with it and we're all stuck with everybody. And that's why we need to treat others kindly and we need to stop polluting the earth because this is where we live and we need to stop killing the ozone layer and climate change is real. Okay? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a lot harder for people to accept than Jesus is coming again. Or, or even that we need to accept each other and and promote like love, because there there's no saved and not saved. Mm -hmm. There, there's just all of humanity. Yeah. Also, I guess I should mention that the Seventh Day Adventist Church, part of their evangelism is taking advantage of the the taking advantage might be a harsh word, but. The, the uh, interest in end times prophecy, like there, there are these uh, lecture series, these seminars where like, hey, you want to know uh, all about these Bible prophecies? Come on down and we'll learn about it step by step. And then slowly by the end, you realize, oh, this is an arm of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And hopefully by then, from they've convinced you and like, oh, well, OK, I'll go to church on Saturdays. And I'll try to stop eating meat. And uh, this, this makes sense. Yeah, Jesus is coming. They get you. And uh, there, there's a very interesting series from a podcast called Ono, oh Ross, and Carrie, where they go to the whole raft of, of these seminars. Oh, boy. And one of the speakers then, uh, in, as an epilogue, comes on their show to talk about it with, with them. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's fun. It's interesting. 
So with that, I think we're going to uh, close up shop on this episode and be right back at you with some mail. Okay. some letters for you all. We do. Uh, we're going to start off with one from Peter. Uh, the prompt for this episode was favorite prophecy. Yep. Peter's is a personal one from his family. When his mother was a young girl in Glasgow, she was at home listening to BBC radio and, and that was playing, you know, the, the hits of the day. And Peter's grandfather came in, uh, listened for a second and said, seals, long hair digits, they won't get anywhere. That, that was a rather poor prophecy because he was talking about the Beatles. They did get somewhere. They got everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> but thank you very much, Peter. Uh, Leanne sent an email, mostly just following up about my uh, fried jello interest uh-huh. from a fair she talked about. Uh, and it sounds like fried jello is not that great from what Leanne has heard. They spent so much time thinking if they could, they didn't stop to consider if they should. Exactly. Yeah. It's usually how these things go. Makes me slightly disappointed that apparently it's it's, it's just as gross as it seems. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about, like, is it dipped in the dough? Or do they have to, like, form the dough around it? Field trip. That's that's all I have to say about I need that. To, I need to investigate this Reddit a bit more. We're going to go to the Indiana Dunes to see the houses. <laughs> yeah. We're going to go to Battle Creek to see uh, the, the White's graves. Mm-hmm. And Sojourner Truth. I, I forgot to mention, Ellen and James White are in the same uh, graveyard as Sojourner Truth, of all people. And we'll go track down some fair some jello. fried jello, yes. <laughs> Got a whole tour planned out. I just out. have questions about the process. But thank you, Leanne. Thank you very much. Not only Leanne, but we also have Joanne, please do not confuse them, writing in uh, this episode. Uh, because Joanne has a personal connection with the 33 World's Fair. Yeah. Longtime listeners may remember that uh, her great-grandparents weren't on the Eastland, but you know, if they had a different job, they would have been. Yeah. Those same uh, great-grandparents had a booth at the 1933 Century of Progress Fair. Crazy. Mm-hmm. And Joanne's grandfather, you know, worked for them at the booth selling souvenirs and handmade stuff. And when he wasn't on the clock, he'd just spend time at the fair at the music pavilion, just seeing all the famous composers and conductors and musicians. Now, according to Joanne, there are still some structures from St. Louis's 1904 fair mm-hmm. uh, left on the grounds. Like the St. Louis Zoo incorporates the aviary from the fair, though she says she might be wrong about that. And neighborhoods that still carry the names of the various areas of the fair that that they were built on. Ah. And Joanne's favorite prophecy, uh, she shares two, both from Greek myths. First, uh, the prophecy that Oedipus would grow up to kill his father and marry his mother. It did not work out well for anyone. Mm -hmm. And the curse of Cassandra that, that... she would have uh, the absolute gift of prophecy, but no one would ever believe her. Mm-hmm. That's just the life of a woman. 
pretty much. Thanks, Joanne. Vega Baby sent us an email, uh, and they are a listener from the beginning, but first time writing in, uh, and are answering several of our prompts. For Favorite Detective, they went with uh, a fictional one of Lieutenant Columbo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everybody loves Columbo. Yeah, and uh, Vega Baby really likes Columbo. Uh, because of the well, story structure of the mysteries on the show, like the audience knows the murderers from the beginning, um, and Columbo is known for having empathy and um, is very sensitive to people's behaviors and interacting with people. Yeah, Columbo is a good pick. Yeah. Uh, and then one's favorite fair for them is uh, a local fair in Denton, Texas, called Denton Arts and Jazz Festival, and it had lots of local bands. Uh, art galleries, classic fair food, um, and it was held in a place called Quakertown Park, uh, which is formerly the Civic Center Park. Uh, it was renamed in uh, the 2000s to acknowledge that to create this park, mm-hmm. they relocated a large African-American community and forcibly removed them. Mm-hmm. Thus, they no longer like to go to this fair because... Of the gentrification that has happened in the area. Forcible gentrification. Forcible gentrification. And yeah. so I can I can get behind not going now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even if something was a good time before. Uh, favorite prophecy is uh, self-fulfilling prophecies as a concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea that simply believing that a prophet's prophecy will influence you enough, your behavior, interpretation of events, makes it come true. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is a fascinating psychological phenomenon, to be sure. Yes. So thank you, Vega, baby. Thank you very much. Rachel writes in uh, to provide a minor correction. The Crystal Palace does not exist. What? Uh, Google lied to me in so many places. Yeah? Yes. Uh, it's the name of an area of London, uh, a London football club. If you go there now, though, the palace itself, you're, you're not going to find it anywhere. There are like six different Google sources that like <laughs> totally said it still exists. So they have pictures. Are we being gaslighted? Who here's lying to us? I assume Google. <laughs> but for favorite detective, Rachel wants to put forward uh, Agatha Christie's Ms. Marple. Getting out of the shadow, no longer being overlooked for Poirot. Uh, a sweet old spinster lady who everybody overlooks, so she she gets to the truth. Thank you very much, Rachel. For- Pesquier sent us a letter, and they're another first-time writer but long-time listener. Uh, and for prophecy, uh, they bring up the 1898 short story The Wreck of the Titan or Futility by Morgan Robertson. Uh, and it is a short story about an ocean liner that hits an iceberg and sinks in the North Atlantic. Uh, it was also described as unsinkable, and there are some other similarities between it and the Titanic, which sank 14 years later. Whoa! Yeah! This is like Death Note, but really slow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for writing in. Thank you very much. David is another longtime listener who writes in to share some information about one of your favorite topics, dear. Yeah. Shipwrecks. Shipwrecks. Uh, taking umbrage at the idea that the uh, Edmund Fitzgerald is the most famous shipwreck next to the Titanic. Uh, he provides several examples that are quite well known in his native Sweden. To be honest, I don't know them. But 
I get why they would be well known there. They're, <laughs> they're pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is a long and detailed letter, and I really do uh, appreciate the effort. So I'd like to encourage all of our listeners to check out the stories of the MS Estonia, the Vaza, and the SS Freya F. Freiken. That's F-R-E-J-A-A-F-F-R-Y-K-E-N. They're all really interesting stories, and I, I'd like to thank uh, David for bringing them to our attention. Yeah. And just reminding us that, that fame is a relative term. It is. It does depend on geographical location. Mm-hmm. I mostly picked the Eastland for that because it was like a pop song. You mean the Fitzgerald? Fitzgerald, not the Eastland, the Fitzgerald. <laughs> pop song. I think the Eastland's the most famous here in Chicago. In Chicago. No. If you know Chicago history, yes. If you're just a regular Chicago person, you're going to know the Fitzgerald before you know the Eastland. Most people do not even know it existed or where on the Chicago River it would be. Yeah. yeah. Just a, a lot of lightfoot heads around here. Yeah. <laughs> but in any case, thank you very much, David. Uh, Rebecca sent us an uh, email, and favorite episode is the Iroquois Theater, uh, followed by the Eastland. Favorite paintings... Rebecca is an artist, so it's kind of difficult, but the two winners went to Girl Reading in an Orangery by C. Pergini, uh-huh. which is a great interpretation of realism, and Two Girls on a Hillside by Renoir, uh, which is one of their favorite Impressionist paintings. Uh, Rebecca also sent us a few uh, uh, picture of some of the... Their own work. Is nice. Is very good nice. Good paintings. Thank you're, you. You're, you're, you're good at that. Uh, and then favorite movie based on a real event is Searching for Bobby Fischer. So thank you, Rebecca. Yeah, which uh, other people mentioned as yeah, well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. Uh, if you would like to send us a message, uh, a question, a comment, a correction, mm -hmm. uh, or answer the prompt or whatever else you, you think might be interesting to send us, uh, all those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. That's right. And speaking of prompts, dear, is there something you would like to hear from the folks about? Prompt is favorite pirate. I wonder what the topic's going to be. I wonder. I wonder. <laughs> Maybe it'll be like bank robbers. <laughs> <laughs> These sea burglars. Sea burglars. So yeah, send us uh, your favorite pirate or whatever else you, you might like to get read on the show to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Uh -huh. You can also keep in touch with us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, and those are all. And hey, thanks to all of our Facebook likers and, and page followers mm -hmm. for, for cracking that 300 line. Yeah, Instagram's uh, definitely not there. <laughs> well, everybody and their grandmothers on Facebook. You're, you're dealing with a different... Uh, the young people? Yeah. They just don't care about history. There's a lot of Instagram content, though. We, we honestly use it more than the Facebook. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for, for pictures and stuff. We just, po just posted uh, some uh, good ones about uh, the last episode. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But in any case, while you're out there, I would love it so much if you gave us a rating and review on iTunes, on Stitcher, etc. It helps us so, so much, and uh, we appreciate every last one of them. Uh, you can also tell a friend, tell your family, your coworkers, pass the word. Uh, word of mouth really uh, goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Something else I'd like everybody to, to check out uh, is 
Gextra Life 2. Yeah! Yeah. All these these longtime listeners will remember last fall, last Labor Day, mm-hmm. we and some friends of ours played video games for 24 hours yep. trying to raise money for Hurley Children's Hospital in mm-hmm. Flint, Michigan. Yes. We're doing it again. Yes. Saturday the 2nd from 10 a.m. to 10 a.m. on the 3rd. Yep. It is happening. We are crazy people, but we're doing it again. Uh, last year, our goal was $2,500. And we raised 29000 Yes. So are, are we officially jumping in to get the 30000 That's right. That's our goal. $30,000 for Hurley Children's we, Hospital in Flint, Michigan. We are living large here and going all the way to 30000 We can do it. Mm-hmm. Every little bit helps. Uh, we're going to be hand-making some prizes to raffle off to donors. Uh-huh. We're going to have a bid war for a, a very special game uh, in the home stretch. It's going to be Bugsby, isn't it? It's not. What? We would get so many donations if it was, like, some, like, Bugsby game. <laughs> I, I cannot reveal. We have reveal. to reach $30,000 for us to play <laughs> Gex or Bugsby. <laughs> and people will be like, take my money. <laughs> I think I've figured out something you guys are seriously missing in the planning here. Maybe, maybe. But you can check out more information and our donation page at gextra.life. That's G-E-X-T-R-A dot life. Uh, Spread that link around. Look out for uh, us and our stream. Again, that's Saturday the 2nd at 10 a.m. Central Time. Yes. And this is uh, something, too, that it will be live, but I assume like last year we'll be putting it up later. So if you Mm -hmm. can't join us that weekend in listening, you can listen later. But you can always join us in a a donation before you have a chance to listen, if you'd like. And speaking of donations, every single dollar helps uh, sick kids get the care they need in Flint, Michigan. And if you're not in a position to donate, every share, every new pair of Mm -hmm. eyeballs helps generate those donations as well. Yes. Giving a dollar might Mm -hmm. not seem like a lot, but those dollars add up. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when it all comes together, mm-hmm. it it makes it, a big difference. When it joins with the other 29,999, <laughs> you were there. You were part of you it. You made the goal. And we appreciate it so very much. So definitely check that out mm-hmm. and all the deliriousness <laughs> that comes with it. For sure. Oh, God. It's so hard. So with that, I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.